am pleased to announce that we have signed two landmark deals securing hundreds of thousands of doses of two new antivirals from Pfizer and from Merck Sharp Dome. These antivirals have the potential... Back in October, when Health Secretary Sajid Javid confirmed the UK's first orders of COVID-19 oral antivirals, Molnupiravir and Paxlovid, there were reports that they could change the course of the pandemic. These antivirals have the potential to speed up recovery time and to stop infections from progressing. If these treatments get MHRA... But with a limited supply, such a short treatment window, and only a few patient groups eligible to receive them, how game-changing can these drugs really be? I'm Dawn Connolly, Features Editor at the Pharmaceutical Journal, and I'm joined by Julia Robinson, our Clinical and Science Editor. Hello! And today, with the help of some experts, we're going to break down how these novel drugs work and attempt to find out whether they'll actually be the breakthrough that ministers claim they'll be. So, Julia, patients in the community have been receiving Molnupiravir since before Christmas, haven't they? But we've just heard that Paxlovid is now going to be available as a first-line treatment from the 10th of February. Yeah, that's right. The guidance for treatment of patients in the community has just been updated and it now recommends Paxlovid or the monoclonal antibody, citrovimab, as the first-line treatment with remdesivir, an intravenous antiviral treatment, as a second-line option. From the 10th of February, molnupiravir will only be considered as a third-line option. Right, and how, how are people that are eligible actually getting hold of these treatments then? So both molnupiravir and Paxlovid have been authorised for use in people with mild to moderate COVID infection and at least one risk factor for developing severe disease. So that's things like obesity or heart disease. And the MHRA has said they must be started as soon as possible and within five days of the start of symptoms. In terms of patients getting hold of them, this differs slightly depending on where you are in Great Britain. So in Scotland, community pharmacies are being paid to dispense antivirals to eligible patients. In England, access is via these special COVID-19 medicines delivery units, most of which are based in hospitals. And in Wales, access is mostly via the National Antiviral Service. All right, so it's a bit of a mixed bag across the UK then, is it? Yeah, absolutely. So we got some data actually on the amount of monopiravir that's been dispensed in England. So as of the 16th of January, over 5,000 packs of monopiravir um, had been dispensed. We tried to get hold of the same data for Scotland and Wales, but didn't quite manage it. So monopiravir is also available as a part of a clinical trial called Panoramic. And this is looking at the effectiveness of antivirals for COVID in the community. We expect that Paxlovid will be added to this trial in early February. And isn't Panoramic the fastest recruiting trial in primary care? I think I read that somewhere. Yeah, that's right. It's really impressive. And I think along with the recovery trial, it's clear that the UK are really leading the way with with COVID trials. So exactly how do these antivirals work and uh, why are they so useful against COVID? I think the way to view antivirals for COVID is sort of like a second line to the vaccines. So as we all know and have probably experienced, it's still possible to have a breakthrough infection even if you've had all of your vaccinations. And there are some groups of people who haven't responded that well to their vaccination. So having an additional treatment available is really important. As well as this, the arrival of new variants of the COVID virus, like Omicron, 
which have the potential to be resistant to the vaccines. It means that having antiviral treatments available could help us control an outbreak. So not just by treating cases, but also by preventing illness in close contacts of people who test positive. In terms of explaining how monopiravir and Paxlovid actually work, I felt it was probably best to consult an expert. I spoke to Penny Ward. She's fellow of the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine and a visiting professor in pharmaceutical medicine at King's College London. So molnupiravir is a, um, a nucleotide uh, product which gets inserted into the viral genome and creates sort of false reading uh, frames, so stops the uh, virus from extending its genetic code and being able to be replicated that way. Uh, very similar agents are used to treat uh, HIV infection and AIDS. For example, the very first ever anti-AIDS drug, which is AZT, is also a nucleotide drug. Um, Paxlovid, on the other hand, is a combination of nermotrelvir, which is the protease inhibitor, which inhibits the protease enzyme of the virus, which creates all the viral proteins that you need to grow a, a whole uh, daughter virus. Um, uh, and uh, without being able to replicate its own proteins, the virus also can't replicate properly and so is uh, uh, restricted uh, in the cell. So um, the ritonavir element of uh, Paxlovid is there to provide a, a, um, a pharmacokinetic boost to the protease uh, uh, concentrations uh, because otherwise the uh, nermotrelvir is metabolized very rapidly by cytochrome P453A and without the ritonavir um, it would disappear uh, very rapidly and you'd have to take lots of tablets at hourly intervals through the day which is a bit impractical but by giving ritonavir you block the activity of cytochrome P453A and thereby sustain the concentrations of nomotrelvir that you need in the nose throat and lung to stop the virus replicating. Okay so they both stop the virus from replicating in the body but in very different ways. So is molnupiravir kind of like Black Widow, whereas Paxlova is more like the Hulk? I'm not sure my uh, superhero knowledge is enough to verify your explanation, Dawn, but if Black Widow is super sneaky while the Hulk just goes straight in for the kill, then I'd say you're pretty on it. I obviously spend too much time with my 10-year-old son. <laughs> anyway, back to Paxlovid. Um, so it's interesting, isn't it, how it's got this additional ritonavir element um, that helps to extend the antiviral activity. Yeah, it's really clever, and it, that's one way that it's completely different to monopiravir. And what, what sort of results have we got from the trials. Um, I understand the estimated efficacies for the two different drugs are quite different, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. So final results for Monupiravir, which was um, a study that had 1,400 participants uh, and was published in December, suggests that compared to those on placebo, the drug reduced the risk of hospitalisation or death by around 30%. And this was quite a contrast from interim results, which were reported in October, which suggested that actually the risk reduction was around 50%. All right. So that's quite a bit lower then, isn't it? Yeah, it was a bit disappointing, actually, when those results came out. Um, in contrast, trial results for Paxlovid's 2,200 person study suggested it reduced the risk of hospitalisation and death by 89% compared with placebo. Wow, that's a lot higher, isn't it? I guess that's why Paxlovid has been recommended first line, while Molnupiravir is third line. So is Paxlovid more effective because of the addition of ritonavir? 
I was actually wondering the same thing, but it turns out that's not the reason. Here's Penny to explain more. No, it's uh, it's because the protease inhibitors appears to be a much better antiviral. It reduces the viral load uh, by a larger proportion than molnupiravir does, uh, and it acts um, uh, more rapidly to clear the virus than molnupiravir appears to do in the early phase trials where they looked at virological endpoints. And um, the clinical trials obviously showed a difference in clinical efficacy measured by uh, assessing the proportion of people that had to go to hospital or required um, or died as a result of the illness. Okay, so hang on. If Paxlovid seems to be uh, much better than molnupiravir at reducing hospitalizations, why has the government ordered more of the molnupiravir? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think it's probably because molnupiravir can be given in some instances where Paxlovid can't. So for example, people with kidney disease and people who are on certain drugs that might interact with the ritonavir portion of Paxlovid. Okay, so I guess taking a really comprehensive drug history is going to be especially important when it comes to prescribing the Paxlovid then. Absolutely, it's definitely a lot more complicated. There are some people for whom molnupiravir can't be prescribed, though. For example, it shouldn't be used at all by pregnant women or women who are trying to become pregnant. And this is because it's been found to be a direct cause of fetal abnormality in animal studies. So Paxlovid is also not recommended for pregnant women, but that's mostly because there's not enough information to be sure that it's 100% safe for use in pregnancy. Okay, so were there any significant side effects highlighted in the human trials? No, there weren't really. Um, Most of the side effects that were recorded included gastrointestinal issues like diarrhoea and nausea or vomiting. But for Paxlovid, there were some contraindications for patients with severe renal or hepatic impairment and lots of drug-drug interactions, which we'll talk about later. Okay, and what about resistance? Because that's been a really big worry with the vaccines, hasn't it? Um, Could the efficacy of the antivirals potentially wane over time? It's probably too soon to tell whether the COVID virus is going to develop any resistance to these two antivirals. However, the threat of resistance is particularly severe for monotherapies like these that each target one part of the virus. Penny made an interesting point about how combining antivirals could help to reduce the risk of resistance occurring in particularly vulnerable populations. It would be safer to use antivirals together in the immune compromised population uh, because combinations of antivirals are less likely to um, be followed by emergent resistance than use of a single agent. And by immune compromised, I mean people with very severe HIV infection with AIDS uh, and people taking very high doses of um, immune suppressing anti-cancer treatments for example, or with congenital um, immune deficiency syndromes of one sort or another. Uh, These individuals can often live with the virus happily replicating for very long periods of time, but not causing very much in the way of disease. So the other medical decision that has to be made is whether you're more worried about the replicating virus that's not causing a problem, or whether you are going to try to clear the virus in the individual, which then risks the potential that that a resistant strain could emerge in that setting. Is this something that's actually being looked at? I don't think there's anything on the horizon just yet, but I do think scientists are looking at developing antivirals aimed at different targets or ones that can be combined into a single treatment to attack the virus on multiple different fronts. 
basically we can't become complacent just because we have these two drugs. We need to be continually thinking about the next generation. Anyway, that's enough from me. Uh, Shall we move on to some questions from our listeners? Absolutely. So just before Christmas, we put out a call for some questions uh, on our website and on social media to find out your burning questions about the COVID antivirals. And we got some really great ones, didn't we? Yeah, we got a few. So the first question is from Rob Ardley. And he says, I would like to know the patient inclusion criteria to be eligible for treatment. Thanks for that question, Rob. So there are 11 broad cohorts considered to be at highest risk from COVID that these antivirals will be aimed at. And these are generally made up of people who are unlikely to have mounted an adequate response to the vaccine because of a condition that they have or a medicine that they're taking. So this includes people with Down syndrome and some cancer patients. As of the 10th of February, if patients are in one of these groups and have ongoing symptoms that started within the past five days, along with a positive test result, they will first be offered Paxlovid or a monoclonal antibody treatment called citrovimab. If these are contraindicated or can't be administered for whatever reason, patients are then offered the intravenous antiviral remdesivir, which can actually be given within seven days of symptom onset. Monupiravir is then reserved as a final third line option. And if they, if someone does test positive, how do they know um, if they're eligible for antivirals? How do they know what to do or where to get them? So in England, most patients who were eligible were contacted back in December with instructions about how to access the antivirals via the COVID medicine delivery units that I mentioned before. And they should be contacted to receive treatment within 24 hours if they do end up testing positive. In Scotland, each health board has set up a dedicated contact number that eligible patients can call to check if they're suitable for treatment. And in Wales, eligible patients are contacted by a healthcare professional if they test positive. Okay. And what about the panoramic trial that we were discussing earlier? Does that have the same eligibility criteria? And might patients end up on a placebo arm with that one? So panoramic's slightly different. If patients are not eligible for antiviral treatment through those other routes, they can be assessed for inclusion in the panoramic trial, which is comparing antivirals against standard care. The trial is open to all patients aged 50 or over who have ongoing symptoms that started within the past five days and a positive test, as well as patients aged 18 to 49 years who have a pre-existing condition that makes them clinically more vulnerable. The parameters for assessing people at higher risk are wider for the trial and include, for example, care home residents and those with morbid obesity or severe mental illness. So if pharmacists are asked about the panoramic trial, is that something they can tell patients to sign up for themselves or does the patient need to go to their GP to get enrolled or how does it work? Yeah, so patients can self-refer into the panoramic study if they meet the eligibility criteria and they can also be referred by their GP. Thanks, Julia. I think we've answered Rob's question there. So we've got another question from Nicola Vassi, who is a paediatric pharmacist in a large children's hospital. And she says, I would really like info on if there is a plan for inclusion criteria in children and then the dosage and administration information, please. That's a great question. Thanks, Nicola. Um, So at the moment, neither of the antivirals are actually licensed for use in children. Penny had a little bit more information about this, though. Here is what she said. Uh, it's too early to say. For for molnupiravir, the answer is no, uh, because molnupiravir does interfere with um, the development of young children, particularly for bone and muscle growth. So molnupiravir will not be used in people who are, uh, are um, uh, before the end of their growth spurt, shall we say. 
Um, Paxlovid, I understand from my colleagues at Pfizer that they are in fact looking at the production of a paediatric formulation and will um, will consider how to investigate that in younger children. Uh, I think we need to bear in mind that very young children are of course not at particular risk from COVID, although uh, some kids can go on to develop this rather curious um, paediatric inflammatory system syndrome. So we would need to have to know whether or not treating uh, COVID early in uh, children at particular risk of those complications uh, prevents the onset of that type of disease. And if so, that's how it would be utilised in children. So I, I, they're looking, but not yet, is the answer. Okay, so we have another question here from Uma Ali prescribing support pharmacist at NHS Coventry and Warwickshire CCG. And he asks, will the drugs work against variants of concern? So Penny explained that the antivirals have both been tested against the Omicron strain in a lab setting. And the inhibitory concentrations are as they are for any other variant, which basically means that they work just as effectively. A study published just this week shows that in lab experiments using non-human primate cells, both antivirals remained very effective against the Omicron variant. And that's not surprising because actually the, um, the variants don't contain any genetic abnormalities or changes in the enzyme structures uh, internally. It's only the surface um, spike protein variation which causes... Uh, changes in sensitivity to the vaccines and also to the monoclonal antibodies uh, treatments that are also available. Of course, these results do need to be confirmed in patients before we can be 100% sure. The same study that I just mentioned did also find that monoclonal antibody therapies are substantially less effective against Omicron than against earlier variants of the virus. Although Citrovimab, which I mentioned before, and another MAB called Evershield, which is made by AstraZeneca, did retain some ability to neutralise the virus. So that's quite a disappointing result, isn't it, for the monoclonal antibodies? I guess it is, like you say, just laboratory tests, so that will need confirming. Yeah, it is really, but I guess reassuring that they still have some activity against Omicron. Okay, so uh, the last question we've got has come from Gareth Malson, and he's a lead network pharmacist at Chester East PCN. And he asks, are there any patients who should not be given or referred for COVID antivirals due to other medicines that they are currently prescribed? Thanks, Gareth. That's a really important question. So we briefly mentioned earlier about the potential for drug-drug interactions with Paxlovid specifically. And there are a lot of drugs that are contraindicated as a result. Hmm. So how many are we talking, Julia? A lot, Dawn. Far too many for me to read out without losing half of our audience in the process. <laughs> are we talking 10, 20, 30? Tens, I think probably approaching nearing 100 maybe. And what's interesting is that the reason most of these are contraindicated is down to the ritonavir portion of the treatment. And ritonavir is a strong inhibitor of an enzyme that plays an important role in drug metabolism. A lot of people will probably be familiar with it. It's cytochrome P450 3A. And here's Penny again. He's going to tell us a little bit more. Unfortunately, there are an enormous number of drugs, as you can see from the uh, summary of product characteristics, that are also metabolised through the cytochrome P450 enzyme system, of which probably the most important are the statins, which are taken by quite a number of um, older people uh, in the UK. Um, and uh, unfortunately, if you boost the amount of uh, statins circulating or some of the statins, you can cause a quite serious side effect 
known as rhabdomyolysis, uh, which can be potentially fatal. So it's for that reason that these contraindications exist and it's focused on those drugs that are metabolized through the cytochrome P450 enzyme system, where if, they, if the, the um, levels of those drugs are increased, uh, it can cause serious medical adverse effects. So hence the reason for the three pages or so of tables of, of chemical drugs that people might be taking that either you have to decrease the dose of or um, are contraindicated completely. And what about molnupiravir? Does that have any interactions that pharmacists need to worry about? So there's nothing from the data at the moment that suggests there are any issues at all with giving molnupiravir along with other medicines. And that's probably because it doesn't have that ritonavir element that Paxlovid does. But I'm sure this will be constantly reviewed just to make sure there aren't any issues with people who are given them. Right. So, it's, I mean, it sounds like prescribing of molnupiravir has been will be sort of relatively straightforward but i guess when it comes to paxlovid which we're expecting to be available um in early february then that that might be a bit more complicated because uh, i imagine that a lot of the patients who be eligible for that um will be the sorts of patients, the older patients that are taking lots of other medicines. Yeah, as you said, monupiravir is really simple in comparison to Paxlovid. I think Paxlovid is really going to challenge pharmacist knowledge of drug interactions. And it's going to take quite a lot of time to get used to prescribing, I think, and making sure that it's given to the right people. So the final expert I wanted to talk to you for this podcast was someone who's actually directly involved in prescribing and dispensing these antivirals at the coalface. So Fiona Mara is an infectious disease pharmacist, but she had very useful things to say and some good advice for pharmacists who might be involved in prescribing these medicines in the future. Just to note though, I spoke to Fiona just before it was announced that Paxlovid would become first line from the 10th of February. So since December, you've been heavily involved in deploying oral antivirals um, alongside the monoclonal antibodies to patients. Can you tell me what it's been like so far and how the process has worked? I was asked by our director of pharmacy to have an involvement in this pathway. So I think we heard around the kind of 20th of December that the outpatient pathway, we had a kind of date for I think the 22nd of December that we would have to ha issue the first prescription. So there was a lot of work went on behind the scenes to facilitate that, both with pharmacy and senior management and medical teams and, and, and nursing teams. So it's patients who are identified as being high risk and they, and they are sent a letter and then they call in. And the nurses, first of all, speak to the patient. They find out if they have had the symptoms within five days, they find out you know, if they've been on the high-risk register and also just things to ensure a safe prescription, like making sure the patients are not pregnant or you know, they're not breastfeeding. So all, all, all those kind of clinical checks are in place to enable us to, to write the prescription. And then we have a, a pathway. Now, the, the pathways are different in different boards and, and different countries. And, but where I am, the, I write the prescription and it's automatically sent to community pharmacy which is great. And then that community pharmacy delivers it to the patient on the same day. So really nice. I mean, the key for this is making sure that, of course, patients have COVID and are isolating. So, we're, you know, they're not having to leave their home if they don't need to. And that we have a kind of slick pathway in place to make sure that happens. That is quite a quick turnaround, isn't it? And do you think there are many patients who did miss that five day um, sort of cut off, as it were? Now, no, because I say the PCR turnaround time is much better and the process has changed where we can accept a positive lateral flow test, 
which greatly improves the, the time. So when I'm, you know, reviewing patients now, perhaps they're just in day two or day three, whereas in the first week or two, nearly all of them were day five. So potentially there would have been patients that, that missed that. We're keeping an eye on data that comes in all the time and there's new drugs coming in. And certainly the majority of patients in, in the last week, um, I think all have been within the five days, which is great. And is data being collected in terms of people's recovery after they've been after they've taken the antiviral so that you're getting an idea of how effective it actually is? We're certainly collating data to make sure that these patients are, you know, in fact, staying out of hospital. You know, that that's why we're doing all this in the first place. It's to um, avoid the progression um, of, of COVID in these patients. So... So absolutely, we need data collection and, and that will be you know as real time as we can get it to make sure that these drugs are doing just that. You've touched on the fact that there's a lot more kind of interactions that might happen with Paxlovid. What can pharmacists do to reduce these risks and how will you be screening patient suitability for Paxlovid? I guess the first step is whatever we do and whatever we look at, that we do have access to prescribing records and, and that they're up to date as possible. And then just... You know, having that pragmatic look at the drugs to make sure if this is going to be first line, can we do absolutely everything that we can to to, to make sure that the, the patient can safely get this medicine? So, for example, a drug like simvastatin is contraindicated with Paxlovid. So you cannot prescribe those two together and you would never want to. You can get up to kind of 100 fold increases. So it's a red line. But it, it that ne- doesn't necessarily mean that every patient on Thimvastatin doesn't need to get this drug because we can look at, for example, stopping the statin whilst the patient is on the Paxlovid. So you're, you're still maintaining the contraindication that they're not given both together, but you, you know, you're know you not blanket saying every patient on the statin needs to get a, a second, third or fourth line drug. You know, you, you can you can advise the patient to, to stop the statin for the duration of the course. So there's lots of nuances within the, the recommendations that I think you know you just need to look at and, and of course remembering that no two patients are the same so if you have an interaction for example between drug X and Paxlovid in an 18 year old the outcome or the advice might be different to drug X who's taken in a in an 80 year old who has also taken 10 other medication and also has renal impairment you know so there's there's not one size fits all and I think that just comes back to the the role of the pharmacist again. That was great Julia it's it's really interesting to hear from someone who's actually um, prescribing these drugs now isn't it? Yeah it's brilliant to get the insights from someone who's right in there. So once Paxlovid does become available in the UK, um, there's only really going to be very limited supplies, at least initially. Um, so although we've ordered, the UK's ordered 5 million courses of these antivirals, that sounds like a lot. But I guess in the context of the recent Omicron wave, where we've been seeing, you know, over a million new cases each week, it really isn't very much, is it? Yeah, if you compare it to the amount of the antiviral Tamiflu that was stockpiled during the bird flu scare, which I think was about 40 million doses, then 5 million doses really isn't that many. And this is why they're restricted to the most vulnerable patients. In an ideal world, we'd like to have enough of these antivirals not only to treat those who test positive, but to stem outbreaks in hospitals, care homes, schools and prisons. And do you have any idea of when we might get more supplies? So the antivirals are pretty complex to create and 
it will take several months to ramp up production. Pfizer is expecting to make 120 million courses of Paxlovid by the end of the year. And Merck and Ridgeback expect to produce at least 20 million courses in 2022 to add to the 10 million they produced in 2021. Right. And you mentioned that um, there's a need to keep developing new generations of antivirals. Have you read anything about um, any that are currently being investigated? Yeah. So because of the risk of resistance that we talked about earlier, scientists definitely can't rest on their laurels with these two antivirals. And other antiviral drug candidates are apparently making their way, albeit slowly, through the clinical trial pipeline. I was reading about one promising candidate that's being developed in Japan, and this works in a similar way to Paxlovid. However, patients would only need to take a single pill each day, as opposed to multiple tablets twice a day. Having a simpler regimen is important because, as we know so well with antibiotics, unfinished treatment regimens can hasten drug resistance. And how long do you think it might be until we receive some results from that? So that particular drug is currently in phase two slash three clinical trials. So we have a little while to wait before we start to see those coming through. So what do you reckon, Julia? Circling back to Sajid Javid's comments at the beginning of the podcast, do you think these antivirals are going to be game changing for the pandemic? Well, maybe not for everyone. There simply aren't enough to go around. But I do think that for those certain at-risk people, for example, the very frail or those who have lots of comorbidities, basically those who are most likely to end up in hospital, these drugs are likely to make a significant difference. But I definitely think it's right to remain sceptical, though. We still have a lot to learn from the data that is currently being collected. And it's only really been a matter of weeks since these drugs became available in the community. But it's a really important step that we found that treating the disease early on in this way can prevent the inflammatory response that leads to people getting really sick and ultimately dying. And that, for me, can only be a positive thing. Finally, during my chat with Penny, she made a really interesting point about long COVID, potentially the worst part of COVID for a lot of people. She said that if these treatments end up reducing the proportion of people who develop long COVID, particularly the ongoing heart and lung damage seen even in people who've had relatively mild disease, then the benefits would be huge. Yeah, that's right. We just don't really know enough about long COVID yet, do we? There's already 1.3 million people living with it in the UK, and that number's only going to get bigger. Personally, I think that if the antivirals remain as effective during real-world use as they were in clinical studies, then they will be game-changing, because they'll enable the NHS to get back on its feet. But I guess that is a quite a big if. Yeah, it definitely is. Especially as the trials for both antivirals excluded vaccinated patients. And we now have a highly vaccinated population. Well, of course, we'll be keeping a close eye on all of that data that's being collected on the antivirals. So make sure you keep up to date with all of our content on our website and on social media. Well, I think that's it for this episode. So thanks, Julia, for all your research and for talking to the experts. No problem at all. And thanks to Penny Ward and Fiona Mara for your time in answering all of our questions. And thanks to all of you for listening. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to The PJ Pod, brought to you by The Pharmaceutical Journal, the official journal of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode, hit follow and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. If you have any comments about this or any of our other episodes, please get in touch on Twitter using the hashtag PJPod. This episode was presented by Dawn Connolly and me, Julia Robinson. It was produced by Jeff Marsh.